Welcome to The Fine Line. I'm Liz Willette Daniels. And I'm Emily Gold. As longtime veterans of the restaurant business as well as wine importing and distribution, we wanted to start a podcast to learn how the people we admire balance hedonism and health. We wanted to explore people's individual journeys to pursue their love of eating and drinking as well as health and wellness, and we ask how they learn and grow in this process. If you are liking this podcast, please do rate and review. Enjoy the show. Brett Zimmerman is a master sommelier, owner of the Boulder Wine Merchant, founder and organizer of Boulder Burgundy Festival, chief wine officer for Integrated Beverage Group, or IBG, and founder of Sustainable Psalm, a new platform that uses science and education to promote socially and environmentally responsible agriculture and production of wine. He is also one of the most fun, kind, and generous people in the business. Brett, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you for the nice introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we could have made it so much longer. (laughs) I love it. So you're involved in more than one thing right now and always. How did you originally get into wine? Um, Always involved in too many things. That, I guess, is a personal downfall. But the wine side of things kind of started with restaurant foundation, Mm. and it, it goes all the way back to when I was in eighth grade, working in a little uh, pizzeria um, called the Roman Village Pizza Place. I think Emily might recall. uh, (laughs) (laughs) It was was a small family-run business, and I I worked in the dish room there. Um, That moved me into other restaurants, specifically places like the Flagstaff House and then La DCO, both of which, at the time, I was too young to drink, but they had world-class wine programs, and the culture was there. So a lot of my friends when I was in college were working at Tulagi's and, you know, Taylor's and all these little bars up on the the hill. And for whatever reason, I just kind of gravitated mm-hmm. towards something a little bit more in the in the fine dining category. And I grew up with my mother cooking all the time. And she was always, you know, back in the 70s, submitting dishes to different culinary uh, contests and different things. So a lot of traditional French and European cooking, you know, kind of in my in my background. So I was always into wine. I was always into food and wine. And it was probably Laudicio <clears throat> working with the Laudicio family that really kind of catapulted me into that exposure because, you know, Antonio was the type of guy that would walk into the room and, you know, you're 18 at the time and he's like, here, taste this wine. You know, try this 85 Sasakai. And you're like, oh, okay, this is pretty good. I have no idea what it is, but my mind's blown. Yeah. Um, so I think that exposure was really kind of what got me into it. And then after college, <clears throat> I got... I took a different approach, even though I studied business at the University of Colorado. When everybody graduated, all my friends were jumping into finance and marketing and accounting, and I started filling out resumes to go to either San Francisco or Chicago. Awesome. And I took a a tour of about six different restaurants and interviewed with some of the best in San Francisco, and then only one in Chicago, which was Charlie Trotter's. And after I met with uh, with Charlie and Mitchell Schmieding, the general manager at the time, um, they gave me an offer, and I said, "Well, I'm going to go to Chicago, I guess." So great. <laughs> so that's kind of how it uh, how it started. That's the little condensed resume, if you will. And what <laughs> was it like to work at Trotters? I mean, was this the heyday of Trotters? It was absolutely the heyday of Trotters. It was. There were some great restaurants that I, I went, I mean, whether it was Wolfgang Puck or Massa's or different places in San Francisco that I went to. But when I went in the experience of just even interviewing with Charlie was unbelievable. He was on, uh, he was <clears throat> on a path to, to being one of the greatest restaurants in, in the world. So 
I was definitely into that. And then also the fact that there was a, a culture for master sommeliers mm. um, driven by Joseph Spellman at the time. And then I didn't know until I actually arrived that he was just about to start a new import business and was kind of one foot out the door that said Brian Cronin, who is also now a master sommelier, um, worked, I worked hand in hand with him and Robert Hood and Belinda Chang and just some unbelievable, mm. you know, wonderful, talented people. And there's so many people that have come from that yeah. organization that are still a, a dominant force in our industry of, of hospitality. It's a, it's a pretty awesome spot. That's awesome. Or it was an awesome spot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's tragic that it's gone, but yeah. it was amazing while it was there. That's yeah. an amazing thing for you to have been a part of. For sure. You know, especially as your first right? you know, out of college full-time job. <laughs> for sure. And I can tell you that it was it was the most challenging job I've ever had. And it was it was there were certainly times where you're working seven days in a row for multiple weeks. You know, you're supposed to, it was, you know, the restaurant was technically open five days a week, but you'd find yourself, all right, you know, we got a, you know, this event coming in or that event, or this is not a house type of a thing. So you never really had much downtime and, you know, working on the wine team, you would come in noon, one o'clock, whatever time it was to, to get things started. By, you know, I mean, I stocked water for the first hour that I was there and then you got into wine and then you got into, and there was a progression just to get in the first six months of being at Charlie Trotters, being hired for the wine, wine team. You didn't touch a bottle of wine other (laughs) than the, the bottle of wine that you might refresh at table 86, which, which was in the kitchen at the time. So it was basically an opportunity for Charlie to observe and critique every movement, everything that came out of your mouth, how you describe dishes, all of it. And it was real tiring. And I can tell you there were many times where I was like downstairs in the locker room uh, blubbering and just feeling bad for myself with some of my other uh, colleagues in the the room too. So it was really, really challenging. But gosh, what an unbelievable experience to be able to get that exposure and to to just see somebody at that level operating at such a high intensity every single night. Well, and I don't know if this is true of Trotter, but having worked for Boulay back in the day, I mean, he came from the old European model, which is just yell at everyone. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I mean, it was just that like sort of like break people down to them, build them up mentality. And I think it's very different now. Yes and no. But um but it I I imagine it was kind of old school like that. But it it was old old school. And I think Charlie, there was a little bit of a get in your brain and kind of mess with you type of a thing as well. I think it wasn't, exactly. it wasn't as much of like a just screaming and yelling. He, he wanted, he would test you in ways that he wanted to know that you were there and you were committed to him in that restaurant. And it was not, it had nothing to do with you. It was all about the restaurant, the guest experience and Charlie. And if, if that wasn't your program, maybe a different job. Well, and don't you think now that you're older and have your own business, you can appreciate the pressure they're under. I mean, at the time, I did not have that perspective at all. No. But, yeah. It, it's a major difference. I mean, I, I mean, if I did even one one-hundredth of, of the <laughs> the stuff that I experienced as, a, as an employee at Charlie Trotters, I think most of my people would just tip out the door and go to the coffee <laughs> totally. shop. I, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. I think there's an, as the culture has shifted it, as, you know, as an employee, as an employer in this industry, I think the stuff that you can demand of people is is maybe I don't know maybe it's maybe I'm just older now but it just I feel like it's less 
you can demand less now than what you you could back in the day. And I I, I mean, people would just come in and like, I mean, would tolerate an unbelievable amount of intensity and work. Quasi <laughs> just like quasi oh my gosh. abuse a lot a, of the a time. A little bit of it, and you know? no sleep <clears throat> and not a lot of money and for sure. Which yeah. I think you know for the for the purpose of this podcast, I think when you think of like that that intensity and a lot of people would would leave go have however, however many glasses of of beer and a couple shots or whatever and you're back at it so it's not only your your physical health but also the mental health component yeah. of of being in the industry and we've obviously seen some of that as a major issue in our in our industry and it's you know we all often just like oh it's you know my diet and my exercise is fine but you also have to take care of making sure that the mental health uh, component is is there as well well so you know, you've gone from working seven days a week and having that be the environment that you started in. Um, but now you are such an incredibly athletic and fit person. So what do you do for diet and exercise? Yes. So for me, I just happen to be one of the people that if I don't work out, if I don't get out and do do, do something to move my body and, and take care of myself, uh, it just I just kind of start to break down. So my so, body... Yeah allows me the opportunity by telling me <laughs> like hey buddy it's it's time to get up and go do something um so i've always had you know i've always come from some form of of athletic background so you know growing up my father and mother got me into skiing mm. you know which translated into ski racing bike racing in the off, off seasons played football soccer a number of different things i was always doing something a, a relatively active busy person as you guys know but the um the i would say the the you know just taking care of myself and strength training and and some of that stuff probably came in at the the college period of time when i was working you know we I, from 18 19 when i was kind of at the the peak of where my ski racing was i ended up having a couple of injuries and and it was always important to me to to make sure that i was in the gym doing stuff and and moving forward uh currently i i you know got into CrossFit about four and a half years ago, and that's been kind of life changing. I was one of the the last people to to jump into the mix. I was always like, "Oh my gosh, this is like a complete cult." And I know uh, Liz, you've seen uh, <laughs> picking up your kids uh, next to uh, CrossFit roots. Uh, people like dragging plates down the. I love it's, to laugh at the shit you guys do. <laughs> it's it's pretty hilarious. The uh, and I've never actually uh, done that particular uh, activity, but but there's plenty of crazy things, including this morning doing all sorts of you know stuff that. I would never actually do if I just went into a gym and right. said, "All right, the, this is <laughs> this is the activity you're supposed to do today." So I do. I love you know. I love the community of it. I love the um, the way they you know. You've you've got a group of, of people who are are professionals. This is not a, a bunch of meatheads trying to you know win the CrossFit games or anything like that. This is people that own businesses, have kids. They're they're Boulder community. And I love I love that aspect of it. I love the fact that everybody kind of pushes each other in a friendly way, and it's all about just making sure you have some sort of foundation for you know greater strength as we get older and balancing you know all the work and the stress and stuff that we that we have in life. And it's one quick hour, and you get in, you get out, and there's not a single time that I've ever gone to one of those classes where I'm not like, oh my gosh, that was an amazing uh, workout. But that's that's been the, the current thing, and then I like to balance that with you know, a bike ride here and there. Um, although with kids and all the stuff with work, um, you know, the 
three and four hour rides on the weekend are, are fewer and fewer. I'm yeah. the master of the 60 minute ride nowadays. And, uh, but that's, that's great. I mean, you know, when it's not a complete, you know, smoke filled environment with all these forest fires and crazy yeah. stuff like that, I do like to get out and ride my bike, but that is, that has made it a little bit, uh, less of an opportunity with some of the, the way the, the air quality has been recently. So I've been sticking more in the, uh, in the CrossFit thing. And, you know, from a diet perspective, I, I've done, you know, I generally eat pretty, pretty well. Um, and I have, you know, whether it's garden produce that we have on our own or some of the community, you know, garden shares that you get, we were, we were really into the Oxford garden, um, CSA over the, the summertime. And that's, I mean, the, the produce that we have just in our local regional area is amazing. It's fantastic. So, um, that definitely helps with you know, staying healthy and preparing quality food from delicious ingredients. Um, and I have, you know, there's things that I've done over the course of time, whether it's a whole 30 type of a diet or elimination diets or t trying to figure out, you know, let's take, you know, gluten or is dairy a, an issue and trying to see how you, how your body reacts to some of that. Yeah. And one of the things that I've actually, I'm not a, not ashamed to, to mention it is the, the app on, on my phone, which is the Weight Watchers app. And it sounds kind of funny because it's like, you know, I'm not like, I don't look at myself and be like, oh my gosh, I'm obese. I need this, this structure in my life to create something. But having just a little bit of a structure mm. to be able to, to kind of hold you accountable and just in a way that's not limiting where you're like, you can't have anything to drink, you can't have any coffee, you can't have any bread, you can't have, there's there's decisions to be made. So you just, you know, you're like, all right, you know, I'm gonna, I know I'm gonna have a glass of wine with uh, with Liz and Emily tonight, I'm gonna probably do this. So it allows you to to balance those decisions. And it's not, you know, I've, I've, I've found that type of a, you know, on, you know, app type of a structure has been great for me. So that's kind of awesome. something fun and different. Yeah, that's a really good hack, actually. Yeah. And do you use that? Because I see you post these beautiful plates. I mean, I know you're an amazing cook. <clears throat> I think you worked in the kitchen at some point. I did. Maybe Laudicio or... Laudicio, and then when I opened my own place at uh, Mateo's in the kitchen there. For okay, a too, because yeah. just having you over, like when I say bring an appetizer, it's <laughs> not like hummus and vegetables. It's <laughs> like some composed restaurant quality thing. And then I see what you... Um, Post. So you guys, obviously, it seems like you sit down for family dinner a majority of the nights, if yes. not always, and you make really beautiful meals. So, but I didn't realize they were also healthy. So that's terrific. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, that has been something, I mean, I've always enjoyed dinner parties and cooking and, mm -hmm. and certainly my wife always, uh, you know, <laughs> gives me a little bit of crap when uh, when it's Tuesday night and I'm sitting here like making multiple courses. She's like, can't we just have one dish? Just put it all on one plate. It doesn't all need to be like multiple courses and stuff. So that's, that's prob a good, probably good problem a, to have. Probably a, a habit from from some of the uh, the background and the training that I've had at uh, at certain restaurants. But I do love that whole European lifestyle. We we. 100% have our kids at the table unless if we're having a dinner party and, and you know don't want the kids at the the table that's an opportunity for us to maybe send them to go watch a movie and have a special night for them for them as well um, but generally speaking any any day during the week we have them sit down with us um, my youngest Finley loves to cook although he hasn't gotten into he doesn't love to taste all the things he likes to cook he likes to you know use the knife and and he uses a, a traditional knife he's That's not great. using like the little junior knife so i think getting them involved in in 
you know, checking out the garden and seeing where the produce comes from and going to some of the farms and the ranches and stuff that are nearby is kind of the first part of that. And then when we sit down, we have them help with setting the table. And we always make sure that we ask, you know, how, how was your day? What was the highlight? What's going on? And then also talk about some of the food and the wine. And, you know, we actually do like to offer our kids a little taste of wine. It's mm. it's something that I I think is important to to create balance and understanding that it's not something that you abuse. It's something that you appreciate and kind of take into, you know, enjoy in moderation and, and do your best to in- integrate that into your food and wine dinner experience. Well, that's impressive because I also have two boys and uh, I don't have family dinner every night. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a certain amount of bandwidth for it. Yeah. Because it, <clears throat> it just like degrades so quickly. It starts out good. It starts out well. And then you're suddenly like, oh, my God. L- let me not paint the picture. That it's, a <laughs> yeah. perf- it's a perfect dining situation exactly. every single time. Uh, oftentimes uh. we have the intention of doing that. And the kids are dismissed sooner than yeah. uh, than, than, right. well, that makes me than normal. Better. So you know, you sit down and and yeah, having two little boys that are wound up and that want to be running around and, and keeping them in one little chair and and focused for. But even I think the minutes. ritual <laughs> is a beautiful thing, and you and Jen are both busy, and so the fact that you take time to do that, I think, is great, even yeah. if it's for fifteen minutes or whatever. Yeah, and I remember that growing up. I mean, that was something that my mother thought was very important, and mm-hmm. I think Jen's parents did the same. So. Yeah. I think it's something that we would like to pass on to our kids and keep in the mix. That's great. I love that. So, you know, we've talked a lot about when things go well, um, but I'd like to ask you about when things don't go well. So have there been experiences in your life where you've had injuries or been thrown off track for other reasons? And what happened and how did you recover? Well, I'll probably have to abbreviate some of them. Otherwise, we're going to be for about an hour and a half. Um, Yes, I've had lots of adversity to overcome in the injury department. I, you know, growing up ski racing and I was a downhiller. So downhill and super G were my events. Um, you don't fall often, but when you do things twist, things break and, um, you can get banged up pretty, pretty easily. So I've had at least a half a dozen surgeries, major surgeries on both knees. Um, I've had broken legs. I've had Baker cysts, removed. I've had, you know, and those are just like residual, you know, complications from surgeries that I've had. So it's been, you know, you know, break it down and talk about breaking it down and building it back up. I mean, that, that process for me has taken place many times. And it started when I was 18 and I was, you know, tunnel vision on the U.S. ski team. And at the time I was skiing really well and on the, on the path to probably, you know, I was on the low level of the, of the U.S. ski team that was not part of the travel team at that point. So they had, um, you know, the A, B and C team were kind of the ones that traveled all over the place, but I was beating many of the athletes that were on the higher teams and skiing. Well, I was positioned to go over to, to Europe a month, um, after this injury, um, to go ski Europa cup and be wow. based in, uh, in, um, uh, in Garmisch in, in Southern Germany there. So, um, that was kind of my life up until the, uh, it was, <laughs> the 31st of, uh, of December. And we were, it was the last training day of a, of a, you know, a camp that was about four or five days. And I came around to turn. It was the last run as always, you know, always last run. Exactly. Always, and yeah. I was running, I was late 
on a on a turn and tried to make the gate rather than just blowing it off and loaded up my ski and it just happened to be also on a, a roller and I just launched myself. And when I came down, I I basically tore both ACLs, meniscus, medial collateral on the on the right leg as well, and basically just knocked myself out of that whole thing. So wow. then all of a sudden you're like, all right, here you go. Uh, you know, whatever dream you had to be on the U.S. ski team is temporarily uh, on hold. And so as an 18, 19-year-old kid, that was my whole world. So I jumped right back in. I was able to, I was fortunate to be in Vail near the Stedman Hawkins Clinic. Uh, you know, Richard Stedman did my surgeries. I came back from that injury really only having just a little bit of guidance from their from their offices with what what to do. They basically just set me on a path of like, here's your recovery program. And I was competing eight months later. Wow. Yeah. So I was, I'm kind of focused on stuff like that when I want to be really, really involved in something, you know, for, with recovery, with, you know, studying for the Court of Master Sommelier's mm -hmm. program, whatever. I am internally motivated in that way. And I understand that not everybody is that way, but that is something that I'm like, all right, I was up every morning at 5.36 doing whatever ex exercise and was exceeded anything that they had expected for my re recovery. Because wow. they originally wanted to like do one one knee and they were like, well, well, we'll operate on one knee and you can recover from that and then we'll do the other one. I was like, not a chance. Well, if you're like, recovering, you might as well just be <clears throat> recovering. 100%. Do you also think in a way that pouring yourself into the training was a way to kind of like deal with the disappointment too like you for know, sure it gave you an, a focus it helps you get over that disappointment and then it also gives you general perspective in life yeah so i you know after coming back from that i had a pretty solid season and then at u.s nationals i broke my leg going through a fence um and at that point it was like all right maybe we'll do something different <laughs> no wonder you're in crag are such yeah, good exactly. I, say, I didn't know you had that much in common <laughs> So that that actually fueled the decision to, you know, I was just, you know, freshly, you know, into uh, my college experience at the U University of Colorado. And for summer, in, because my I'm sitting there in a in a boot and my you know, leg is still broken, I decided to go to Chicago and work on the, the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. So huh. it kind of changed the path from constantly being focused on like it's all U.S. ski team and nothing else. And then all of a sudden I'm like. All right, I'm going to go to a, a city, you know, learn learn a new trade, learn different experiences, meet new people, and so it, it definitely changed my lifestyle and my my perspective on life. So rather than just being, you know, I've got to achieve the U.S. ski team, I moved on, and so that was, you know, I still love skiing. I still, you know, it's one of my favorite pastimes. I love doing it with my with my children, with friends, with my wife. It's, you know, but it, it doesn't need to be everything. Yeah. <laughs> Oh. That's amazing. I yeah. think of myself as being pretty internally motivated, but after my second ankle surgery, I stopped doing physical therapy as soon as I couldn't see the cute guy anymore who was doing it with me. <laughs> I was just like, oh, well, I guess that's over. For sure. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting because that is actually, <laughs> you know, I think it's really hard to maintain the program. You, yeah. you, and you get to, you get, it's so important to, I think, go, you know, my my experience of going through some of the stuff driven by passion to get back as soon as I could gave me gave me a clear understanding that the difference between stopping somewhere in the mi middle part where it's it's kind of you know you're fine you it's can walk enough. around it's yeah. good enough as compared to like follow all the way through the whole process makes a huge difference and it's you know you know, it's it's challenging because you get to the point where you're like all right this feels pretty good but it's not perfect um, 
and the the you know that extra work that goes into making it perfect is <laughs> is kind of challenging with everything that goes on in life for sure. So, mm-hmm. but my experience has definitely been you know getting getting everything and starting soon too. You know when you get you know having an active process in in place pretty quickly and range of motion and you know kind of pushing what you can do um, with the doctor's you know blessing of course but uh, but making sure that you're smart about how you're getting back from an injury I think is is critical and I've had great people whether it's Aaron Carson at Rally Sport or some of the people that I've worked out with um, that that make a big difference and keeping that motivation knowing that you're going to go see somebody. I think helps for Being sure. Excited to see them too, yeah. right? That's... And they give you they give you an understanding of kind of where the the progression is with your with your recovery too. So yeah, uh, but that imbalance that you always anytime you have a, a surgery, I've, I've found that anytime somebody cuts into your body, whether it's a knee, an arm, a wrist, whatever it is, there's I mean just that I mean you just you almost hear your body deflating in that yeah. in that area. It's, <laughs> you it's know? a trauma. It it's is a trauma, yeah. right? You know, yeah. so and it takes a lot of work to get it back or or somewhat close to back to being balanced with the other, you know, yeah. the other side. Because there's so much overcompensation. For, and for sure. to touch on the, you know, mental health side of that as well, I do think that part of what motivates people to really go all the way to recovering is about how much you value yourself, you know? For yeah. sure. Like, does Good it point. matter to you to really be up to 100%? Um, yeah. And, and, you know, the mental health component of, you know, there's uh, depression is, is absolutely connected with, with injuries. Anytime you have that, have that, you know, whatever it is that you enjoy doing taken away from you, you got to overcome that. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's a long process, especially early on until you start to see some progress. Then all of a sudden you're like, okay, I'm starting to get on the other side of this, but that it's a challenging thing for, for anybody. I watched my wife go through it with her knee injury just a couple of years ago and it's challenging at, at, you know, for anybody, anytime. Especially when the thing taken away from you is exercise, which creates endorphins. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. And I think I'm like you, I always say I'm a dog that needs to be run in the morning. And if you don't run me or I don't run me, then I'm depressed for sure. So it's it's a major thing. I agree. Yeah. Because of those endorphins. So. <laughs> um, so how in keeping healthy, how do you manage travel, eating out? We all do so much of that, of course, a little less right now, but in general, hopefully in five years we'll be doing No, for sure. <laughs> I'm just kidding. One of these times. Yeah. In the future. Yeah, you know, travel, tra- as I get older, travel is increasingly more taxing on my body. Agreed. Yeah. And there was a period of time when I was, you know, late 20s, early 30s, and, and you know, when I worked for Domain Select and I was traveling all over the country and, you know, gone almost every week or every other week for sure, I could deal with it a little bit better than I can now. And nowadays I'm, you know, I'm stuffing, you know, rollers and little uh, lacrosse balls and whatever else in my, in my suitcase instead of the extra pair of shoes that I might bring. Um, for the purpose of just, you know, when I get to a hotel room, you know, stretching or doing some sort of exercise, um, you know, the CrossFit format is nice because you can take care of, of a, a lot of stuff in a small space in your, in your room. You can do push-ups, sit-ups, mm-hmm you know, whatever it happens to be, just to at least, not not that you're going to make some massive gain, but just like move your body and just kind of stretch out. And, you know, Aaron at Rally Sport has often given me exercises to, you know, open up my hips and do things like that. I mean, sitting in those yeah. horrible chairs on the, on the plane and then when you get into a, you know, a car and you drive another two hours and then you go right to a meal and you eat, you know, whatever, however many multiple courses, you know, 
those of us in the wine industry, there's always somebody like trying to outdo the next person, you know, with, <laughs> oh, let's go to another fancy dinner. And you return from that and you're like, I'm going to go have a salad, maybe some like, you know, just simple Mexican food and stretch a bunch. <laughs> yeah. If, if <laughs> so, you can find a salad. Then exactly. Sure. But you have your, uh, you know, my body absolutely tells me what's going on. And, you know, certainly my, my low back and my hips and, and some of the things that, that shift or get stuck when you're, when you're traveling by sitting in some of those chairs, I, I've got to stretch and I've got to work, work out or do something to, to make that, make that balanced out. And as, as it, you know, as diet, I mean, if you're, you know, eating a bunch of, you know, heavy foods and drinking too much, I mean, you're probably just not going to feel that awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when we travel for the Court of Master Soleil's and we're doing a bunch of, you know, education events that take the majority of the day and you're sitting in, in some horrible, you know, inexpensive chair in a, in a hotel for eight hours. And then you get up and you like have enough time to like walk into your hotel room, check a few emails, change into something more casual. And then you go to a, a dinner and, and there's plenty of wine and food and everything. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta keep disciplined. Otherwise you're going to wake, wake up the next day being like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe you know, I had that much food and, you know, big steaks and, you know, plenty of wine. And you also have to take into consideration, you know, what you're there, what you're there to do, your productivity. If you're there to, you know, proctor an examination, you want to be clear headed and you want sure. to make sure that you're providing those those students with a with a great opportunity. So it all kind of ha goes hand in hand. I think, you know, making sure that, that you find balance and, and feel good, I think, is feeling good actually motivates us quite a bit. You know, when you wake up and your leg hurts or something hurts, you're like, oh, <laughs> all of a sudden that kind of uh, makes makes a makes a decision, uh, makes the decision to change something that much easier. So when I always find on trips, because I'm not very disciplined on trips, that my saving grace is working out yeah. in the morning. And, you know, they always say, don't sacrifice sleep for exercise. And I'm like, <laughs> bullshit, like, especially for those 10 days or however long you're gone. It's like. That's more important, I think. Well, for sure. And it matters if you're sacrificing, you know, going down from eight hours to six hours or from six hours to four hours. Right. right? Like true, <laughs> true, true. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. Which is why I think we always find ourselves coming back from whatever vacation or trip that we go on and you're like, gosh, I am like super tired. Exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to eat some fresh vegetables and yeah. sleep. Let's go eat, get greens and sleep a bunch. I, I'm definitely still in the phase of my life where I really miss being able to just eat burrata for dinner, you know? <laughs> so, well, What's wrong with just cheese, right? I don't know. Are we ever going to be in a phase where we don't miss that? I, mean, I don't think so. Sure. I don't yeah. think I'll ever let go yeah. of that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. That is a good thing, for sure. You know, Liz, I think a lot about how lucky you and I are. We live in a beautiful place, we get to be friends and host a podcast together, yeah. and we have the occasional addition of some liquid luck. Oh, you mean tequila, don't you? I do. You know me so well. Top shelf only, please, like suerte. I love suerte. And it's not only authentically handmade at a boutique distillery, but it's also super affordable. It's top shelf quality at a school night price point. Yeah. And it's born in Mexico, but raised right here in Colorado. So we're also supporting a small locally owned business, which you know I love. I do. I think all of our listeners should get in on some of this liquid luck in their lives. You can use the code FINELINE15 at checkout on shopsuertetequila.com. That's FINELINE15 at shopsuertetequila.com. Or if you are here in Colorado, pick up some Suerte Tequila at Boulder Wine and Spirits, North Boulder Liquor, or the Boulder Wine Merchant. Maybe we'll all get lucky this weekend. <laughs> 
Changing subjects, we'd like to ask you about the court of master sommeliers. There was the instance of cheating in the 2018 master sommelier exam, the very delayed response to Black Lives Matter, and most recently, the New York Times article detailing numerous sexual assault and harassment allegations. Can you tell us your thoughts and what is being done by, by and within the organization to address these issues? Yeah, that's a nice... Uh... Nice list of uh, yeah. of black marks yeah. on the uh, association, uh, right? Right, for, you know, starting from the uh, from the top going down there. The uh, you know, my thoughts on the cheating scandal. I think it's. I, I think there's a lot of stuff that's unresolved. I think there's a lot of people's lives who that were that were negatively impacted by that horrible situation, mm -hmm. and it's really really unfortunate to have some qualified, deserving people that did in, indeed pass the master sommelier exam and now they're just you know put in this group of people that was set aside to preserve at the time what the board thought was this you know integrity of the the examination in the organization but it was at the expense of these people that worked really really hard for any of us that have and spent so much money money I mean, time yeah, you think of like, you think of the impact you know talk about impact on your life yeah. your spouse Yes. Your your children, the people that are around you that I mean, there's so much sacrifice that goes into that. Yeah. And to think of like actually like legitimately passing that exam Finally. and coming up with yeah. nothing at the end at the end of it is just is horrible. You know, and I, I wish I wish there was a way that we can, you know, maybe there is a way that, that the the new board and some of the things that uh, you know that have changed recently could could resolve that in a way that would be better. I don't yeah. think it's ever gonna be perfect. It's but it it's got to be better than that. And For I think listeners out there that don't know this whole scandal, this is um, the Court of Master Sommeliers, who's the certifying board for master psalms in the country. And um, I, I, I still laugh. They call themselves the court. I'm like, why <laughs> are we in like medieval times? Exactly. Anyway, and so this one Master Som, who was on the board, was taking bribes to supply answers. Is that no? I think the the situation was this person decided to to take it upon themselves to send an email to some of the candidates that included some of the wines that were going to be included in the examination. And why would one do that? I can't for the okay. So life he wasn't getting paid. Out, or... and, and quite frankly, I think I think it would actually probably do. I mean, even if it was if it was undetected, it would probably do more harm. Just you know, how unfair of somebody just to assume that like, oh, let me let me provide somebody with some of the answers. You know, as a candidate going in there, if you that that would poison anything yeah. you were doing, even if it didn't, even if it didn't. It might come mess to the with surface. your mind even more because you're one, like, which one is the dot? Totally, right? One hundred percent. So I mean, it's such an unfair thing to do across the board. It's right. it's and it's the it's the the greatest breach of the confidentiality and the trust that we put into this organization and the process and the people associated with it. There are a lot of people that go to, to great lengths to make sure that this exam is done perfectly yeah. every single time. And to have a board member do that is just, it's just so unacceptable. And it's, you know. And people dedicate a decade sometimes because you have to pass all three levels. Yeah. You can it resets if you don't pass all three. If you don't pass all in three years, three years, then you three reset. Years, okay. So yeah, there's been people that have gone through two full cycles wow. of reset yeah. um, to do this. It took me, uh, you know, three years to to get the the tasting part of that examination, and yeah. it's it's a lot a lot of work. I, I would hate to have somebody, 
you know, in an unfair situation, send me some email. I mean, imagine opening that email. You right. know, it's like, that was, that's horrible. Ugh. It's just, just so bad. But and there's, they'll never know who got it. And who didn't? Not, I, I think How that's... How not trace that? Oh, because it, it might be that then that person told someone else or... Sure, you know, yeah. but, but I mean, there, there, there's got to be a way to maybe like, you know, figure out some of the people that had no exposure sure. to that, certainly didn't know and pass the examination legitimately. Yeah. You know, that's, that would be my hope to figure some things out, you know, and there's, you know, certainly with some of the, the stuff with the, the Black Lives Matter... Uh, and the lack of response there, um, that that's that's also unacceptable. That's yeah. something that I mean, that people I think, were calling them out. Like, what what say you? And it was just crickets. Yeah, and you, you know, can't. This is a bunch of white men up. You know. Yeah, and I th- so I think it speaks to, you know, the changes that have to be made in in the organization to the transparency that needs to be, you know, provided to people with yeah. you know you know whether it's voting on certain things with the board, whether it's some of the examination information. I think this organization has got to the point now we're at a crossroads. We need to change. So, you know, we've just just had the previous board step down. We're in the process of uh, final parts of the election. We have elected a new board. Mm-hmm. We have a, a female, Emily Wines, at the, uh, at the top as our director, which is super exciting. She's an amazing uh, an amazing master sommelier. She's an amazing person, um, and she's unbelievably bright. and going to do a great job. Great. And then we're in the process of of looking at. Uh, we have three candidates that we're going to choose from that comes up in the next couple of days, and so we'll have a you know a vice chair and a chairman um, by the end of the year here, which is really exciting. So, in um, moving into, seem like a great group of candidates. It is. That, it like. is, and you know, and I've sat on the board um, for for a term, and it's it is a lot of work, and it's not something that that you get paid for, and it's not something that, you know, most people aren't sit, sitting there giving you an attaboy or pat on pat on the back for what you're doing. So it's a lot of thankless work, uh, but it's so important. I mean, if we want to keep this this organization moving forward and actually develop, it's it's got to be done because because you know. It's in any organization, racism, discrimination, sexual harassment, none of that stuff is is acceptable. Yeah. And, you know, the for the change that needs to take place moving forward, we're we're looking at at you know the some of the very, very top of the list items that need to take place are bringing in a, an outside CEO to run the organization Great. and having three, four, five different members on the board that are not a part of our organization, but are, you know, that Smart. have experience, that are professionals in other areas yeah. that can help us mold the the future of the of the organization in a way that is inclusive, that is professional, that is not some little club yes. that club. that has yeah. the you know potential for, for anybody to abuse power. There shouldn't sure. be none of that. So if the thing I think for, there were so many parts of it that were so disturbing, so I don't even know where how, where to qualify this. But the fact that um, who, Jeff Kruth, yeah. right, was the main offender, and he's not the old boys club. I mean, he's – I mean, he clearly is, theoretically. But what is he, 35, 40 or something? I mean, he's not yeah, – you know, 40s. and I, <clears throat> I think that was um, was equally disturbing that it's not like – not that it's more excusable if it's a 75-year-old man, but when you see someone who's grown up in our time, 
knowing that these things are not okay anymore and was still doing it. I mean, listen, it's the age old story of someone who probably never got much regard and then suddenly got a little bit of power and then just like, you know. Yeah, abuse of of power in in leadership positions is is something that that w- w- as it's not just the court of masters only is that 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 needs to be. No, you see it in Hollywood. You see it in sh- with chefs. I mean, you see it over. You know, yeah. we've seen it so much lately. And I think I think as a society, as you know, we need to do a better job. We just need to to, to change that. When when we see it, we need to call it out. When we yeah. ne- when it's called out, we need to act on it. We need to make sure that it's that it's removed from from you know the organizations and the things that we do it's just it's well and it has to be an environment where it's okay to call it out because yeah. a decade ago you that voice would have gone completely unanswered i think and it wouldn't have been a supportive environment to bring those things to light yeah i mean that was covered in the new york times article that people who made claims a decade ago were ignored yeah. basically yeah or marginalized or whatever it is and so that i think that's a huge shift that yeah. like now we can finally voice these things. Yeah, and the, you know, I mean, there's plenty of work to be done. I mean, sure. you know, the ladies that have stepped forward and and you know have a, you know the example of of that bravery is you oh, know, should be know. applauded. 100%. And you know, we should do everything possible to make sure that that it is taken care of yeah. in a way that you know the people that did you know wrong to these to these individuals. Need that you know that needs to be whether it's whether it's through the court system, not our court, you know, sure. <laughs> like through the, the, court, the legal yeah. legal yeah. system, or or otherwise. I mean, we need to you know remove those people from our organization, and they need to be dealt with in a in a way that is. You know. But is there any sort of because the New York Times article it was just no comment, no comment, no comment by all these guys and all the people that protected them. I mean. I don't think any sort of healing can happen until there's some admittance of For guilt. Sure. I mean, if you look at someone like Mario Batali, he said, I did bad things and I apologize. for. It. At least he admitted yeah. it. And I think that doesn't excuse it. But, you know, at what point are, as a as a group is the court or just the Master Sommelier, you know, association in general going to demand some sort of admittance of either guilt by the people that were the abusers or at least also guilt by the people that were protecting them and are still protecting them. Yeah, I mean, I know there's a lot, lot, there's a lot of time and money that's going into just investigation. Um, And I think it's too soon to to actually make a, you know, a a statement that would, that would indicate that there's any, you know, there it's happening, I think is, is, is right. And in my hope, like I think for, for everybody is, is that the court of master sommeliers goes through the right processes Okay. To really, really make sure that they, you know, get get as much information as possible, make the right statements, do the right things. Yeah. Um. You know, and let's like uh, my goal is getting back to, you know, let's restructure the organization and and t- touch on all of these things that they've done and put things in place to correct that moving forward. And then as an organization, we just need to you know adopt a new system. Yeah. And a new way of thinking uh, of things and and move, you know, keep the core of you know, elevating, you know, the quality of beverage service and hospitality, which is what we do best in educating people and get away from some of this stuff, but include, you know, some of the trainings that we've done with, you know, Azura Antoinette that we did with the, uh, after the Black Lives Matter and some of the things that they're putting in place moving forward. There's been a lot of really progressive thought, thought processes and 
things that they've you know had us as an organization do since a lot of this stuff has happened and i think we need to continue that education moving forward i mean if we're if we're going to be standing up in front of 100 people you got to make sure that you're doing that in a way that is respectful yeah. and yeah. and include all of these things and some of these sensitivities and some of the things that that have been you know that we've been criticized for you got to be aware of it you can't just say you know well, that doesn't happen you know <laughs> right it does it must be heartbreaking for you. I mean, you know, I said when I, I posted something right after this happened saying, I know so many good men in that organization, more good men, way more good men than not. And so it just must be heartbreaking for all you guys who have, you know, who are are the good side of things to see this happening because it, it does affect I the I would just like to say it is not as heartbreaking as it is for women who have been assaulted. Oh, that yeah. goes without saying, 100%. And, so. and that's, you know, I mean, you, you know your first your first thought and reaction is, you know, gosh, I mean, like how horrible it's got to yeah. be for some of the people that were affected by this. And, and you know, trying to trying to make that OK is probably never going to happen to the degree or to the level that you would like it to be. Yeah. But but moving, you know, making sure you move on on this this whole thing in a way that is that is progressive and you know, correcting the, the, the stuff moving forward is, is essential. It's gotta, it's gotta happen. And I agree with you. I think there are a lot of really amazing people in this whole master sommelier group and not all of them are, are doing ridiculous stuff like this. I mean, of there's a lot not. of people that, no, that care more about this organization and hospitality and taking care of people and educating people, uh, than you can possibly imagine. I, I, that's one of the things that drew so so many of us to this this group of people. And I I put decades of my life into this this organization, as so many have, and I care a lot about it. And I want to make it you know whether I sit on the board this time or the you know in the future, I will continue to give back and I will continue to try to you know make make things right and, and change some of the perception and and reality of of what has gone on in the past to to. You know, do it better, yeah. and I think that's all we can all we can do at this point. And reach out to the people that have been affected, and and you know, make sure that they're okay as well. You know, and 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 I think I've I've seen a lot of you know correspondence with some of these these people where where our organization is actually reaching out, saying, "Gosh, you know what? We we thank you for your for your you know bravery and stepping forward and making sure that this is this is out in the open." Because you know, thank God it's not. I mean. I mean, thank God it's out in the open, I guess is what I'm, what I'd like to say is, is we can move forward, yeah. you know, addressing it in a different way. Cause what a horrible thing to have oh, going on in, and in any organization. And to see it in black and white after having lived through it, you know. It's not a good thing. That is for sure. So. So you're taking all these steps, you're restructuring, you're doing trainings, you know, you're thinking about how to make all of this better. What do you see for the Court of Master Sommelier's a year from now, let's say, or 18 months from now? What's your kind of picture of where these steps lead you? Well, you know, it's it, it's the, the pandemic, I think, has actually been perhaps a good time to kind of put things, you know, you know, on ice and just kind of, you know, because we're not doing any any classes right now and we sure. won't be for, for quite some time. So, you know, I, I think the, the soonest would be middle part of you know, 21, where they might start doing some stuff. And it's, you know, like so many organizations, I mean, it, that is also crippling, you know, with no revenue whatsoever. I mean, it's hard to keep an organization going because, I mean, that's that's how the, you know, the introductory 
class and the certified class, that's how the, that organization makes its money. And it's, you know, it costs a lot to run it too. Um, so it's, you know, I think I think we have the opportunity to like really put everything into the, the the newly elected board, and try to give them all the support that they they can possibly have. And I think there's, in addition to the board, I think there's there you know a lot of, even if you're not a board member, there's going to be a lot of of roles that some of us in the organization can step forward and be a part of a particular you know, breakout group that's focusing on diversity, that's, you know, focusing on, you know, finding the next, you know, the, the, our, you know, first CEO, some of those things. So I think there's an opportunity to take this time and really restructure and rebuild and like have a lot of people involved. And some of the calls, you know, we had a, we had town hall meetings and different things leading up to the election. And I was, I was, very pleasantly surprised to see how many of the, of the the quartermaster sommeliers members were on these calls, like all but just a handful, That's you know. And there's you know we'll we'll often do, you know, situations like every every couple of years prior to COVID, we would you know get the whole attempt to get the whole organization together for you know a weekend type of a thing. You might get half of the people that go to the thing. So you know, I, to me that was enlightening to know that there are a lot of people that truly care mm -hmm. about the direction of, of the court and, and are well aware of, of how, you know, if we don't make these changes, we won't have a court of master yeah, that's period. Because yeah. nobody's going to want to be a part of that organization. Nobody's yeah. going to want to sit in the crowd and, you know, have some group of old school people that, that might harass you uh, <laughs> teach you anything. So, so that's, that's, I mean, I think that's the, the truth is, you know, you got to change or you're going to die. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. <laughs> kind of a, a light topic, right? You know, uh, to, to continue on with the conversation here, right? So, but I mean, I think, I think, you know, keeping that confidentiality, um, adding transparency and adding, you know, inspiration um, to try to, to, to correct these things and do it better. That's the, that's the future for sure. It'd be so great if it was a cool happening organization i've never seen it as that on the contrary yeah. so it would be nice if yeah. this i mean if something good came out of something so horrible for sure that's the uh, goal well thank you for actually doing the work to help get us there yeah, do my best for <laughs> sure <laughs> so of the many things you do you have a new project called sustainable psalm we would love to hear what it's all about what its goals are yes so in the uh august Right at the beginning of August, we officially launched the Sustainable Psalm website and platform to move forward with educating people um, kind of on, on products and practices and stuff that goes on, on the, in the kind of behind the scenes, if you will, with a lot of the stuff that, you know, wine production, spirits, beer, any of that stuff, everything that goes into that, there's, there's stuff that's behind the scenes that we would love to know as consumers, but you don't always have the tools. So if you walk in, you know, as a retail wine shop owner, you walk into our store, we do our best to try to make sure that we have producers that are doing things in a thoughtful way, that are that respect the environment, um, that take, in, take social considerations into, into, you know, how they're doing things. And then ultimately, of course, organic or biodynamic farming and careful handling in the, in the cellar and how that translates into what you have in a bottle. You know, there's limited there's limited tools that consumers have when they walk in. And certainly when you look at certain price categories, some, some wines that are $50 that are Demeter biodynamic certified, and you know, the person that they're a really careful farmer and producer, 
that's that's not what we're talking about yeah. here. We're talking about that lower category of bulk wine that's on the on the market that may or may not be influenced by pesticides, herbicides, plastics, plastic plasticizers, excuse me, and any sort of residues from so many of the things that that could be applied to the vineyard or something nearby or left over from industry that that existed prior to the viticulture. So we we basically I have a partner in this and that's Jackie Bowen and she has a uh, an organization that's a nonprofit um called the Clean Label Project and so in certain you know projects that I've done with Integrated Beverage Group I had the opportunity to to meet and work with Jackie and she is a food engineer and and somebody that has worked in um verifying organic claims on products for years so this is right up her Alley, and then she works with a secondary laboratory to to test products mm. for purity to see what's in it. And so you you know you get some of these panels and you like look at some of these things. A lot of it requires me asking Jack Jackie or you know Sean from Ellipse or somebody from you know that run the the analysis as to what I'm looking for. But it's really shocking and disturbing to see some of the stuff that is included: heavy metals, arsenic, all these things, lead. You know, I mean, we talk about the the devastating effects of lead long term there there's there's certain vineyards and certain wines that have very very high level like three four five times and we're talking places like piedmont places that that you wouldn't think of like a, a legitimate piemontese producer having some issue with these with these deals but nobody's testing and hmm. you know it's not just organic or biodynamic that's going to save the day you have to understand what's in the soil and what the plants are actually you know taking up and what how that translates into the bottle. So is most of what you're seeing and testing for things that come from farming or what's in the soil versus things that have been added? In generally generally so, yes. <clears throat> so you know, it's a different it's not as much of the, you know, you know, certainly every every lab, there's a lab at almost any winery and they're looking for small, you know, microbial things that that might have gone awry or some sort of a thing that they can, you know, switch up and make a make an adjustment or filter or do something. And this is actually, you know, take it one step deeper, if you will, um, to to be able to to identify with what is actually in the soil. Um, and I think testing is really the only way to to do that. And not to say that all of a sudden every winery is going to just be like, oh, you know, let's take on this, you know, forty to eighty thousand dollar a year expense just to uh, to test and make sure things are clean. But if in the future, I think consumers are smart and consumers are out there looking. I certainly see it across the street at the Whole Foods that is across from my wine shop where people are very mindful of the of the food products that they're grabbing and like looking at the, the back label and making sure they pay a little extra for their organic produce. Um, that hasn't translated into beverage alcohol. And we need to create and establish some some tools for people to be able to have to go in and, and make that happen. So the sustainable psalm going back, that's the the long-winded kind of process of what's going on. But my goal is, as a nonprofit uh, entity as well is to make sure that we give people both on the industry side as well as co consumers the opportunity to make more informed decisions with their wine purchases. If that's something as simple as as the Sustainable Psalm endorses this product okay. as something that's, that's great. That's what I was going to ask. Is it like a label or a... And we're moving in the direction of creating uh, a label. We do have, you know, in, right now, if Jackie's 
uh, organization has put something through testing. There's a clean label project uh, stamp and seal of approval that the, the TTB has approved and something that you'll see on certain brands. Uh, certainly the IBG group has gotten into that, but we're working with a, a number of wineries that are very interested in jumping in because um, as, as you make people aware of some of these issues, um, people who want to do it right are like, Wow, I didn't realize all that stuff is going on. Let's make let's make some yeah, changes. So, yeah. you know, that is that is the ultimate goal, but in the meantime, giving people an understanding of what's happening in the environment socially, you know, taking it not just from the soil perspective, but like the the problems and the issues in our industry and how do we educate and inform people, you know, to to make some changes that are meaningful and to make better decisions when it comes to products that they purchase. And I think you're so right. I mean, we've talked about this, and I say it all the time, that I have friends that spend all sorts of money to get pasture-raised eggs and grass-fed beef and all the things, and then they go buy shitty, industrially made $12 wine. And you don't have to spend a lot of money Correct. to get a good organic wine. But it's like that's the stuff that's going right into your bloodstream. Don't stop there. Like yeah. either just don't care about the food and have it all be crappy, but don't spend the money on the good food and then ruin it with really bad wine. And I just don't think people think about it because once you point it out, they're like, huh, that makes such sense. But yeah, so and I think you, you can great. you can navigate a lot of that from, you know, professionals in the industry, the three of us included, where We've been to some of these farms. You've been to these places. You've seen the processes that the the winemaker goes through to make sure that they're carefully handling these products. And any one of us could come, you know, come up with a dozen producers right off the top of your head of like these are our wines to to look for for sure. They are doing a very very they're doing a, a very careful job of making they making care. these. They yeah. do care. Yeah. And any one of those could could have a $10 bottle all the way up to a 50 or mm -hmm. beyond that. So there's plenty of totally. wine to, to your yeah. point. There's plenty of wine that's in that 15, 16, $17 range. It's not about, I mean, it's really hard under the $12 range. Um, and I think people just need to understand that, you know what, maybe the days of $12 bottles that aren't polluted with, with stuff that's, you know, made more like a juice rather than a wine, um, maybe just upgrade a touch. Yeah. So, like you do with your food. Exactly. So, you know. And, then, you know, now, now that people are with our pandemic and, you know, you sit there and watch the nightly news and you're like, wow, like one terrible thing after another, um, treat yourself to maybe a little bit better food and some wine and, and upgrade the quality of the wine that you drink. It doesn't need to be, a you know, going from $10 to $50, but maybe just uptick that a little bit and pay it a little more attention to, to how you, you know, purchase your wines. Um, this makes me think... Um, how is Sustainable Psalm similar to or different from the natural wine movement? So we are, <clears throat> you call me insane, but I might <laughs> jump down the, uh, you know, <laughs> the rabbit hole of trying to help define some of the natural wine. And I think all of us in the industry, um, you often see frustration or people rolling their eyes when the word natural comes out because of its, its confusing nature there's not i mean let's let's define this i mean so when you're talking about natural wine you're thinking all right this comes from nature but the when you look at it in the food industry there's like natural ingredients there's there's no definition there it's right. it's wide open and you can add all sorts of garbage and in the the wine side of things people walk in and they've read an article in the new york times of somebody referring to natural wine or they're following certain sommeliers that are you know natural wine this natural wine that um i think you're never going to get everybody to agree 
on one particular definition, but I think we really want to, you know, some of the the stuff that we're doing and some of the things that I'm doing with Jackie is, can we come up with a framework that has enough of the very important things that that are required of natural wine, you know, lack of additives, you know, certainly organic farming, how you handle things, sulfur treatment, all the, all of those things, you know, tick those, you know, be able to, you know, you know, click off all those boxes and have a number of, of wineries that would already fall into that category. And if they want to use that, you know, Brett Zimmerman's natural wine, uh, that's not what it would be called. But if you had, uh, you know, natural wine, you know, as a, as a, some sort of a label claim that you could put on your wine, I think it would be useful. I think it would actually be something that, that would be great. Of course, there's going to be a rebellion from the very, very, you know, very focused natural people that might not appreciate what I'm trying to do. But I think having more of an opportunity for consumers to understand what natural wine is and truly the root of the meaning and what some of these producers are really trying to accomplish, I think is meaningful. I think it's, I think it's a, a, the right way to go and not just ignore it because right now people walk into our store and, and some people just want organic. Some people want biodynamic. Some people want macerated. Some people want no sulfur. Some people, you know, so, so our team at the wine shop has, the duty of, of trying to identify with what a consumer is looking for when they come in and then trying to guide them according to that. Yeah. So I think I, I would like to see a little bit more clarity for that for people in the future. And, you know, myself included, I was, I was one of the people that would always be like, Oh, natural wine. Here we go. You know, and I work for a natural <laughs> wine company. Exactly. All my eyes. So <clears throat> yeah, no, but it's, I, well, I it do was support associated with re-fermenting, like problematic wine for so long. And now, you know, we all know that the top producers in the world are mainly natural winemakers, actually. For sure. But, you know. It's... And some of them get funky by, as a result of the pace at which some of the ferment fermentations sure. go. And so you get perhaps more oxygen exposure or a couple of more, you know, quote unquote, natural aromas that are often connected to like something you might smell in a cider or a sour beer or some of those, you know, those esters that that are just interesting and unique in a different way than than a traditional wine. So many of these wines that are one hundred percent fall into all of the requirements that you might think natural wine is are brilliantly clean and yeah. and, and it's getting traditional. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. So yeah. I think people are figuring out how to you know eliminate certain things that they once added just as like all right we're adding this 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 and and now if you you know, in, in contrary to what people think, I think a lot of people think like, oh, it's natural. You just, you know, bring the grapes in and throw them in a barrel and, and walk away from it. It's actually a lot more hands-on than, than people think. I think making sure that a wine that is, that is fragile and needs a little bit more attention requires that much more focus of the winemaker through that period to make sure that the wine doesn't go awry. It's so much well, easier just to like farming. add a bunch of sulfur and say, yeah. you know, all right, we're done. Well, just like in the vineyard, it's easier to <clears> add <throat> chemicals than to have more manpower, woman power, whatever out yep. there actually tending to the soil. And so it is much more labor intensive. For sure. At every step of the It'll process. be interesting to see where we're at in five or 10 years mm. with this, this category, with this description, with, you know, the industry in general. I think it's got to continue moving. You look at the growth of this category over the last couple of years. Oh, crazy. It's yeah. it's exploding. And I think it also is meaningful when you look at the industry 
and the importance of making sure that we inspire the millennials and the younger generations that you know to to drink wine and to get engaged um you know the the fun unique labels the di- different names um i think a lot of that generation has jumped in there and not with traditional bordeaux or barolo or well, a lot of that is accessibility i mean yeah. i think when we were learning about wine it was a lot less expensive to drink those classics and now it's just out of reach even for us (laughs) it's so crazy well and you know on the one hand i think it's wonderful that young people can jump in and have wine be whatever they want it to be you know the education doesn't have to be this linear old world thing necessarily true but also i love bordeaux so right well (laughs) for sure and if you don't get a chance to kind of taste what wine can be when it's you've got the means and the sort of history of always making wine a certain way, then you might not even know. So that's where it's tricky. That's where we want everyone to have the opportunity to taste the greats just from a reference point. For sure. And we have our favorites, certainly. I mean, I'll join you with a glass of Bordeaux any day. Yeah. Um, and, but I'm also not going to pass any sort of judgment on people no. that want something really strange and funky. Totally. I'm going to have it Juicy on the shelf and, fun. and I'm going to discuss it. With with whomever yeah. comes into the store and is interested in that category because it's a part of the, the industry. Well, and we want them drinking wine as opposed to other <laughs> things, too. So whatever that is, great. And look at the beer category yeah. these days. I mean, I can barely keep up. I mean, thankfully, I've got uh, William and Chris and some of the guys oh that, that uh, you know, it's unbelievable the explosive growth in a different direction. Of hazy IPAs. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and and goos and all these different, you know, crazy different categories that, that these these breweries, the, the pace at which these breweries come up with these things and release them is unbelievable. And they're doing it in such an amazing way. Yeah. And the following that they have is fabulous. So I think that, that for me, indicates that, that the wine industry doesn't want to be left behind um, we want to make sure that we're kind of in line with some of those drinkers and maybe, you know, all right. Keep it you know, fun. For sure. Yeah. If you're not drinking a, a, a an interesting sour beer this this weekend, maybe try something that's that's high-toned and acidic. Because a lot, you know, you know, I was drinking a a, a, a Jean Vat uh, Jura wine the other day with, with my wife and, and we were, I mean, really acidic, you know, almost to the point where you're like, wow, this tastes kind of like a you know, sour beer type of a thing. And Jen was like, is this supposed to be this acidic? It's, yeah, it's pretty tart. It's pretty, uh, but that's, uh, I think our industry is, is progressing and it's moving in a, in a unique, interesting direction. And I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it and happy to, you know, constantly be learning new things. Cause that's, I mean, that's part of what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. I think it's it's an amazing thing to like drink a chilled glass of, you know, Natty Beaujolais and like literally a juice cup. <laughs> totally. Um, but what I like so much about Sustainable Somme is that, you know, you're essentially trying to make this category of wine even more accessible and clear, right? Like open it up to people who might not necessarily want to read a bunch of articles and look at everyone's Instagram to see what they should be drinking. You know, maybe they yeah. just want to go into a store and be like, can I have something that's not bad for my body in this price range? Yeah, For sure. Yeah. And I think we've seen that with certain brands, you know, some of the fun like leaders that are that are released and some of the, you know, like the, you know, the Foradori. I mean, th- some of those, you know, that Unlitro oh, or, yeah, oh, Unlitro, you know, some of those, some of these like really, really top notch producers that are doing something that's a little bit more fun, certainly yep, more accessible younger, from a price yeah. point. It's, it's a great, you know, change up a little pivot if you will that that moves people in a different direction and you're drinking serious wine yeah but it's just a little bit more fun and a little bit more playful so 
This is awesome. I've had yeah, so much fun thanks today. It's good stuff. This is just like a little today. coffee talk here. <laughs> so many good subjects covered. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Brett. No, thank you for having me. I love it. And for everyone listening, thank you so much for tuning in. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And this podcast exists with the support of our sponsors and also from donations from people like you. So if you are interested in donating, you can go to finelinepodcast.com and click on donate. Thank you in advance.